You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a book with legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the chief executive officer and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Just a quick note, if you enjoy the show, we'd encourage you to go write a review or give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, wherever you consume your podcasts. But let's get going for this episode. We're going to have some fun. We're glad you joined us. We're going to talk about international trade, the flow of goods, and economic development globally. We will discuss how it impacts economics regionally. Shannon K. O'Neill is joining us to talk about her book, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. She is the Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies, and the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin America at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is also a Bloomberg Opinion Colonist. If you're like me and addicted to the Bloomberg Terminal, you'll, you'll know who she is. Um, she's also on the Board of Directors of the Tinker Foundation. Shannon was a Fulbright Scholar with her PhD in Government from Harvard, MA in International Relations from Yale, and a BA from Yale. Shannon also wrote Two Nations Indivisible that was published in 2013. Shannon, thanks for joining me today. Really glad to have you. It's a real pleasure. Nice to be with you. So I, I always, we always ask authors this because it's, you know, it's interesting to always hear the response, but what, what inspired you to write this particularly, what, you know, about the idea of kind of deconstructing uh, the, the myth of globalization? You know, in part, I sort of stumbled across some data and that that spurred me to write this. And I was looking at North America and I was looking at issues involved in North America, looking at energy ties and people ties and security ties, and then also commercial ties between Mexico, the United States and, and Canada for some work I was doing. And I, you know, as I took a deep dive into some of the data, I saw, you know, there's a lot of integration between the three countries, 40% of the trade goes between the three of them. But then when I sort of pulled back the aperture and started looking at comparisons with other parts of the world, other continents, you know, Asia or Europe or the rest of Latin America or Africa, you know, I started looking at those numbers and, and found that, you know, while North America is pretty tied to each other, there's other places in the world that are more integrated, that are that are more regionalized, that trade more with each other, invest more with each other. And and those differences sort of struck me and, and I wanted to figure out, did they matter? And if they didn't matter, why did it matter? You know, does, is that something that might explain economic development or economic competitiveness or other kinds of things that we care about in, in our globalized world? So that's really what, what led me down a bit of this path. So you open in your introduction with Akron, Ohio, and you kind of use that as your picture of some of the change that's taken place. Can you teach our, our listeners what the Akrons of America were at one point? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in, in Akron, Ohio. It's in, uh, you know, sort of the middle or north northeast part of the state. And you, you go back to the Akron, Ohio of my parents or my grandparents, 
you know, the post-war period, it was a booming town. It was, you know, they like to call themselves the rubber capital of the world. At one point, they're making one out of every two tires that that were, you know, put out globally. And it, it was a really prosperous place. Lots of people came to Akron to work, you know, whether they came to move there or they just came to work, uh, you know, migrating from West Virginia or other, other places around there. And it was a really, you know, prosperous town. Um, it then started to hit the skids in the 1970s and, and early 1980s. Um, the tire industry and those you know, industries around it uh, started to face stiff competition from Japanese tire makers and car makers, as well as European ones. Mm-hmm. And by the early 1980s, the last tire was came off of an assembly line in Akron, Ohio, and none have been made since. And the big companies that were there, you know, Goodyear and Firestone and Goodrich and General Tire and others that you know you might have heard of their names. They were sold off to competitors, uh, and and you really see the town hit the skids, and and many people hold it up as a place that is you know uh, an example of the Rust Belt or you know the challenges, a victim of globalization. So that's sure. sort of what um, what I grew up with, and you know as I looked into this book, you know what I argued that that's not actually what happened to Akron. The the difficulties yeah. Akron faced were very true, and and all of that did happen, but but I would argue that actually. What Akron faced was less being a victim of globalization and really a victim of limited regionalization. So mm-hmm. when they started facing competition from the Japanese or the French or the Germans, they didn't really have anyone to turn to. You know, they were on their own. They were trying to become more innovative, become more cost friendly and the like all on their own while their Japanese competitors were turning to the rest of Asia or many other countries and outsourcing and by that doing that, able to bring their cost structure down. Uh, The Europeans were doing the same. They were part of the European community, which is the predecessor of the European Union today. And so, you know, German Continental or or French Michelin, they were able to sell throughout all of those countries and really gain economies of scale that those in Akron, Ohio, uh, weren't able to do. So part of their challenges was NAFTA was a decade away, and so they weren't able to lower their costs and be more globally competitive. And, And that's one of the challenges they faced. So you have a great line in your intro, and I have to read this um, to, to quote you, uh, quote, nostalgia blurs the vision. During the sp- supposed middle class gold age of the 1950s, one in five households didn't own a car and fewer than one in 10 had a television. Today, the average home has two cars, three televisions, and a proliferation of other screens. Nine out of 10 have a computer, three out of four Americans, a smartphone, a middle class lifestyle that includes former luxury turned basics, air conditioning, washing machines, and dishwashers. Abundance has come in large part from technological breakthroughs, but mass ownership is also the result of supply chains that draw in many different factories and countries to make goods cheaper for all, end quote. I love this. Okay, first off, no one says that. It's just factually true, though. It cuts through to the reality of today. Um, we just did uh, a few episodes ago, we did a book called Super Abundance by Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley. I don't know if you've come across that, but you touch on themes of their book. Why do people and politicians peddle a false nostalgia of the past? This is, a, this is a real question, and I think there's there's lots of answers to it, um, right? If you said our time was the best time, then it would be hard to sell yourself, especially if you're in the opposition to, you know, sure. to other politicians. Yeah, yeah. You. So you need yep. something to kind of fight against. Um, you know, I think the other thing is, and then this is back to, you know, one of the 
the hallmarks of this latest round of globalization, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, the title of my book is The Globalization Myth. So I think the way we think about it isn't quite right. But but one of the differences this time around compared to globalization episodes or eras of the past is it really is one of supply chains. You know, when you look in the past, people were sending out finished goods. They were sending out the finished product that they made in their country to, to other countries, mostly. And this time around, that's not the case. And most of the trade that goes around the world, 75, 80% of it, are the inputs to finished goods. So the commodities or the components or the parts that go into a finished good. So it's a very different globalization. And I think that gets at why the 1950s or 60s is very different than today is the nature of trade has changed. The other thing that's really different that I think we, we tend to overlook and politicians tend to overlook because it's it's not a uh, it's not a great story or it's not a, a, a reaffirming comforting story is you know when the US was really dominating the global economy in the 50s and 60s early 70s in part it was because so many of our potential competitors or or other big economies had really been knocked down um you know on the back on their back foot because of world war 2 you know mm-hmm. europe was really destroyed and was just you know could barely feed itself much less ex- become an export powerhouse to other other nations the same with japan and 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 much of asia had yet to really climb that sort of economic development ladder so the U.S. economy and, and U.S. companies were pretty much on their own and able to set the terms of the debate. And what happened in the 70s, 80s and, and through to today is, you know, we no longer and U.S. companies no longer set the terms of the debate here. There's lots sure. of competitors out there. And so you have to be more nimble. You have to be faster. You have to be better. And you can't sit back on your laurels. So I think that's a hard lesson or, or a hard message for any politician to say is is that, you know, you need to step it up here, right? It's, it's not that the others are necessarily behaving badly, though sometimes they are behaving badly and we can talk about that, right? The rules of the game aren't quite right. Exactly. Um, yep. But part of it is you really need to step up your game because others have done that as well and are doing, doing it very efficiently and innovatively and at affordable prices. So uh, this is kind of the, the practicality of the writing in your book that I, I just really enjoyed. So you point out that the average country in the world, two randomly chosen countries on average are 5,300 miles away, but yet most of trade doesn't go on that far away. Can you teach our, our, our audience more about, when you talk about regionalization, what are you talking about in distances that trade usually flows? Sure. So, you know, we often think of globalization, or at least when you read about it in the news and the like, that there's a sense that, you know, the world is flat. That was a famous title of a book, you know, 10, 15 years ago by Tom Friedman. And this idea that, you know, things flow all over the world. Everything's made on the other side of the world. And, And what you find when you dig into the economic data is that that's not actually the case. Mm-hmm. We have seen a huge increase in trade. So trade's gone from $2 trillion in 1980 to $22 trillion today. So that's a, a huge growth. So internationalization has definitely happened. But when companies or money or suppliers or customers go abroad, they don't tend to go to that other side of the world. Sometimes they do. And we have examples of companies that really do source from, you know, 58, 60 different countries and have this huge global footprint. But alongside those better known examples are thousands, tens of thousands of other companies that you and I might not know their name unless they happen Mm -hmm. to be in our community. Um, But they did go abroad and they just, but they went nearby. And so, you know, if the average distance between two countries is 5,300 miles, 
the average traded good only travels 3,000 miles. Mm. And 3,000 miles is about the distance from New York to Los Angeles. It doesn't get you to Shanghai. It doesn't get you to Berlin. It doesn't get you to you know, the other side of the world if you're based here in the United States. And, and I think that's an important understanding here is when you combine that with this globalization of today is one of pieces and parts moving around more than finished goods, you start getting supply chains, but the supply chains you get are much more likely to be regional. So when you're manufacturing something, you're much more likely to turn to suppliers or, or you know, a customer nearby in a country nearby than you are to decide to go to the other side of the world um, to get that part, to get that component. And, and that, I think, is really important in understanding what's happened to you know, communities all over the world, but particularly U.S. communities who have hit harder times or have struggled with with internationalization and and you know imports coming in. Um, but it's also important in thinking about what are the solutions? How do you bring good jobs to the United States? How do you think about improving the U.S. economy or or other countries thinking about their own economies? You know, this regionalization, the ties to to closer by countries, I think, is really an important part of um, both what's happened in the last forty years, but also the answer for those who want to grow more quickly and in more inclusive ways. Agree. And you add a really good argument that I think is even more valuable in the post-COVID world. You talk about the time. You know, be, there's transportation costs, but a factor in cost is always time. How quickly does it take to get to market to get that input to your point? We've had George Gildron. He loves talking about money is time, right? And it's the only way to affect for time is, is by paying money. How do you look at the time to get products to market? I mean, we think back in the last two years of all these ships sitting at port, and it, that was real money being left on the table when they sat out at port. Don't you think that further enhances this regionalization argument post-COVID? I definitely think it does. And and one is, right, COVID showed us that sometimes you thought it was just going to be six weeks and it was going to turn out to be six months because of Correct. the challenges yeah. of, of logistics. For appliances so, and things like that, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm still waiting on a refrigerator that we're trying to replace. So, I, you know, there's there's challenges here, right? But so time from from that distance is part of it. The other thing is, is alongside COVID, we've also changed, at least U.S. consumers, I think, have changed their patience in in waiting for goods. Um, you know, whether it's the Amazon effect or it's, it's other things is you expect to, you know, get on your computer, click on there. And then within 24, 48 hours, you you hope that something actually shows up at, at your front door. And and I mean, it's a, it's a marvel, the kind of logistics and the speed of which we can do things. But But what that means is that Products that are created in factories that are far away, especially if they're lower margin products that you're not going to put on an airplane, you know, you're going to send it on a ship. That six weeks that it takes to get across the ocean is is really expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite examples in the research I did for the book was the company Zara. So Zara is a fast fashion brand. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure many of you have seen the stores if you haven't gone in and, and bought things. And it's the biggest fast fashion brand in the world. It sells half a trillion dollars worth of goods every year. It's also the most profitable fast fashion brand in the world. And the way it does this is it makes, uh, produces most of its products, about 85% of its products, not in Asia, but in Europe and around Europe. And so because of that, and this gets us to your time issue, they are able to do it. Uh, they use a lot of automation and, and systems and the like, but they 
do things in small batches. They get things from design to the storeroom floor much, much more quickly than they, many of their competitors do who make things in Bangladesh or, or their other parts of Asia. And because of that, they're able to keep their profit margins high because they don't have to discount. Things don't are much less likely to go out of fashion, um, even in the fast fashion world. And so I think it's an interesting alternative as we think about, you know, even in the most cutthroat of industries, this regionalization can come to an equilibrium or come to, you know, a profit margin that's better um, than the ones that, you know, people used to depend on or, or others depend on that's, you know, from shipping, you know, getting very low cost goods, um, but that are further away. Uh, to add one more thing on the shipping, because you mentioned something that I had really never thought about. And I think it's because I think we live in a blessed time and, and I thank God that we live now versus, you know, a hundred years ago. Can you explain 70 years ago, actually, I think technically speaking, it was like 67 years ago when shipping changed with steel boxes and what took place in price. I think that's just a really interesting story to your point about technology and innovation. Yeah, well, there's, you know, sort of a fascinating story. And there's a there's a great book out there called The Box, which explains shipping containers and the whole history. So awesome. I, if you if you like yeah. to nerd out on these things, definitely oh, go find that book. Yeah. It's great. Um, but, you know, it's interesting before we had shipping containers and now they're so ubiquitous. You can hardly imagine a time when you didn't have them. But, exactly. but there was a time when we didn't have them. And so you had longshoremen. So people on the docks who would take all of these goods, you know, thousands of different goods and it, you know, whether it was, you know, produce or furniture or whatever else people wanted to send on, on boats. And, and these individuals, mostly men, but these individuals would pack a ship, you know, kind of the way you'd pack your car for vacation. And, you know, I don't know if you have done that recently, but it's, you're putting little things in, in, in the corners and then you have to pull something out and then you're trying to fill all the space so things don't move around and break along the way. And, and that's really what overseas transit was like before you had shipping containers. Um, it also had to happen on the dock because everybody would bring their product and then these individuals would, would sort of piece it together rather than say at the factory you fill today, you fill often a shipping container and then just that gets onto a truck and it's brought right to the dock and then it goes straight on onto the boat and onto wherever it's headed. And so that was just a transformation in the way things worked. Um, it meant that boats didn't have to spend as much time, you know, otherwise they'd spend a week, maybe even two weeks uh, at the port as they were filling up. Um, so that didn't happen anymore. You know, you get them in and out within, you know, a day or two or sometimes even hours, depending on the technology that's there. Um, and it really lowered the price. So you, you know, the ease of shipping things across countries and just the the cheapness of it, COVID times aside, of course, but it, it just transformed the industry and allowed us that abundance that we were, you know, you brought up earlier that we're talking about where, you know, you can buy a washing machine or a dryer or all these sorts of things for hundreds of dollars rather than tens of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. um, the way you would have before this. So you also point out um, just this pragmatically when companies go abroad, it pre presents, you know, interesting challenges. And I, I, these are laughable, obviously, Shannon, but I love your little stories you tell about, like everyone's heard about KFC and, you know, their blunder in China, but you point out some other ones. And I think my, the Electrolux one might be my favorite. So I'd love for you to just kind of, <laughs> it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's still really fun to think about. It is so. So the background to this is is that it's hard to go abroad, right? We, you know, it's not easy to go to to different um, different markets, whether searching for suppliers or, or searching for customers, and that the difficulties in going abroad tend to grow the further away you go. And so, as you, you know, one of uh, my favorites too is this one where you know the 
Electric Lux is a European, you know, appliance brand and, and they have vacuums. And so they came to the United States and just their their tagline was nothing sucks like Electric Lux, which doesn't <laughs> translate very well in American English, let's say. Right. And, um, you know, there was another one where, you know, in, in China, no one wanted to drink Pepsi because the translation of their, you know, a choice for a new generation was, you know, drink this and your ancestors will come back from the dead. So so there's challenges there. <laughs> But, you know, to a broader point here versus the funny bloopers that sometimes, you know, PR and marketing campaigns uh, become is that there is a challenge when you go further away. And, and, you know, one of the studies I used in my research was one by McKinsey, the consulting company, and they surveyed about 600 different companies. And what they found was that when companies went abroad, they internationalize, their profit margins did go up. They found ways, you know, whether they found new customers or they lowered their costs or they found new technology, mm -hmm. they're like, their profits went up. But the further away they went, then their profit margins started to come back down. Um, and so they found, in fact, they dubbed it the globalization penalty, which was go too far away and your profits go down. So it was sort of a Goldilocks. You need to go a little sure. bit away, but not too far away. And and I think these, you know, these bloopers that you get in, in marketing are one aspect, but there's other aspects of, you know, building teams across time zones and languages and cultures, uh, or maybe across legal systems or accounting systems, those kinds of things tend to weigh down you know, companies and those who are trying to build build corporations. And I think do explain part why globalization isn't as global as we often think. Sure. And trees don't grow to the sky either, uh, as, as you're <laughs> kind of touching on. So in your book, your regional histories, Shannon, is just, I love your regional histories. I love how you used companies, you know, to talk about some of these regional histories and how the companies grew through the regions changing. You kind of you kind of kick this off in Europe talking about uh, Stuttgart, you know, post World War II. In full disclosure, just so you know, we own stock in Porsche Automobile Holdings, Volkswagen, the Porsche car company that just went public, and BMW. So we really, you know, we we love this idea and point of view. So yours. that's why you had me on the podcast. There you go. No, 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 no <laughs> I, I, it's not. But I, I love the story you tell of kind of like the the pre World War II and then the post World War II industrial because this was the industrial base of the Nazi regime for better or for worse. And yet they kind of rose from the ashes to even today, it is still the, you know, it, it's one of the epicenters of the automobile business still, but it's different than it was in the past. It is. And, you know, Germany's recovery in the, in the post-war period, there's lots of reasons for it. But I would argue that one of the reasons was regionalization. It was that Germany post-World War II became part of the European community. Um, you saw lots of diplomats around Europe meeting and, and trying to find a way so that we, they didn't end up in another war. And so they signed lots of treaties. They signed first a treaty to share steel and coal, then they signed mm -hmm. uh, the Treaty of Rome, which, which brought together six countries where they had you know, a free trade area. So you got rid of tariffs and the like. Later on, they signed other agreements that you know got rid of regulatory differences, you know, some that brought in one currency for, you know, a good number, the vast majority of, of the various countries brought one passport and the like. And, and so that early story of, of Germany trying to come back and, and sort of reestablish re itself, you know, part of it was that they then had access to this European community. So they weren't just trying to rebuild cars or vehicles or machinery or other things for, for Germany, which had been devastated by the war. Um, but they had other countries that they could they could participate with and also that they could find customers or find suppliers. And, and it was from 
banding together those first six countries and then later grew and, you know, now is 27. Um, It's by banding together that they found economies of scale and specialization um, and big enough markets to to become profitable and then to create, you know, the jobs and and the communities and and all of the the feedback that comes from economic growth. And, And I think that really is you know, the story, when you look at Germany and, and how successful it's been as an exporter, you can't forget that really its strength lay on on this regionalization, on the fact that it was the European community that it was it was set within, um, and then the European Union later, um, but that it was set within that really allowed it to be competitive globally. When you do a really good job of pointing out the benefits like you were just laying out, and yet there's a tussle that goes on back and forth where you it's kind of like you know your end objective, but you don't know how you're going to get there for a lot of these you know trading partners and this idea of regionalization. And you talked about how countries want to pick and choose, even in the European Union, what they're willing to give up and what they're not. I mean, this is a challenge. And, and interestingly, the European story is one of diplomats negotiating with each other and coming up with these compromises. And, and you know, the European Union has had lots of crises along the way. It's had lots of challenges and, and still yeah. does today. And, and I can't imagine in the next 10 years it won't face many more. Um, but at least so far, every time that they have hit those those moments of truth or, or of challenge, they have decided to double down on the European Union um, as an entity. So, you know, in the 1980s, they were hitting the challenge of, of, you know, there were no tariffs, but there were all these regulations. So it was making hard to trade between these these different countries. And they had had a really long time, really hard time getting rid of these these regulations. You know, one of one of my favorite examples there, just because it talks how how difficult it is to get rid of regulations is they had 25 years there where they were fighting over the definition of of uh, jelly and marmalade. What was what? And so how would you regulate each one, right? So <laughs> you can imagine the Brits felt very strongly about what marmalade was or wasn't. Um, but anyway, in the 1980s, they decided, you know what, we can't negotiate each of these products because there's thousands of them. We're just going to you know, form this common market and we're going to just assume all regulation is the same unless there's some reason, a public health reason or a national security reason or the like. So what that meant is from when that was put in place, all of a sudden, you know, if you had a car in Germany, you didn't have to test it all again once you went to France. Um, so sure. all these kinds of things went away. And you know what? That hasn't happened in the United, between the United States, Mexico or Canada. We still see a lot of those regulations. So no, there's not tariffs, but a lot of those different regulations and tests and, and other kind of protocols remain. And it costs, costs businesses a lot of money. So that was a real advantage that Europe has been able to overcome um, and largely because they sat down at the negotiating table. It was really led by diplomats. You have a great stat uh, in that portion of your book. Uh, you said, quote, in roughly one generation between 1947 and 1975, incomes grew more than they had in the previous 150 years, end quote. Um, how much of that move in that 28-year period would you ascribe to just kind of a recovery off the low of the end of the world war for Europe versus beginning to allow entrepreneurialism, productivity, and freeing up markets during that time? So it's both, of course, right? You know, you take the the mid to late eight, uh, 40s as a start, and and you right, you've just seen many of these countries devastated by war. You've seen you know their economies stop or or slow down significantly as as mm-hmm. people were at the front, but a big part of it was was this recovery and recovery in in two ways. One was, sure, just getting back to where they were before, but that happened pretty quickly, actually, within a decade. 
But then the next couple of decades was, you know, there was new infrastructure built, there are new ways of doing things. This combination of bringing together these countries and their economies, it, it became, you know, much bigger economies of scales, bigger populations, bigger labor forces, more access to various resources and the like. And so you do see uh, this this blossoming and growth. I mean, the other thing you also see, which is interesting during these kind of golden years of, of, of Europe, I would say, or that recovery is that productivity growth among workers was really quick. And it was faster, actually, than productivity growth uh, in the United States for, you know, sure. for workers. So, so I think that, too, isn't just about recovering um, from the devastation of war. That's really about, you know, a time of, of education and, others, and other sorts of things, of automation that were coming into the systems there. And really, I would say fundamentally, a, a pillar of all this was the regionalization of Europe, of really tying themselves together commercially and economically. Well, so prior to the war, one of the toughest things that the United States was grappling with their European allies was this idea of trying to find a fixed currency rate. Okay. And you, you talk about, you know, what that was like post-World War II and, you know, this idea of, you know, Europe trying to integrate with a currency, it, you know, this is just kind of the same issue recurring for the, the continent. Can you teach our listeners quickly about the snake as the first currency agreement came to be known and what took place to arrive to get to the euro? So this was a big challenge, and it was particularly a challenge because the United States had a much more fixed currency. We had the gold standard, uh, and, yeah. and so Europe was was trying. Well, first, just to step back for a second, in the in the immediate aftermath of the post-war, there were all these currencies. There was the franc and the lira and, and all of these other currencies, but nobody really knew what they were worth, and everybody was a little hesitant to take other people's currencies because sure. it was hard to tell if it was worth anything um, given given sort of the chaos. So. Part of the Marshall Plan, which was you know this plan where the U.S. sent over billions of dollars helping Europe rebuild itself, part of it was backstopping the various currencies and saying, okay, this is what a lira is worth compared to a franc, compared to you know a pound and, and the like, and and let us help you get the flow of money across borders back up and running. So that that was part of it. But then as you as you get moving forward, you know the U.S. had the gold standard; it had a very strong you know the dollar. And, and European currencies, there was a challenge in this trade. You know, they were part of a European community in terms of commerce, but they had different currencies. And depending on, you know, inflation rates and economic growth and other things, certain, you know, Deutsche Mark would be too strong for the franc and it would lead to different competitiveness issues or, or the like. And so that is a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge today, right? You see the U.S. government at times talking about currency manipulation and worried about sure. certain countries holding theirs down. You know, sometimes it's China, sometimes it's, it's Taiwan, sometimes it's others that, that we worry about. The same thing was happening in Europe in, in the 60s and 70s. And so the idea in the 1970s, as inflation was growing, as the oil shock was happening around the world, was to tie these currencies together so they couldn't move so much compared to each other and, 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 and make it difficult for commercial operations on different sides of the border. So one of them was dubbed the snake. It didn't last too long. Not, maybe, it was the, maybe it was the name, but maybe I think it was more the structure. Um, and they were trying to keep the currencies, the, the differences in the currencies or the fluctuation of the currencies within a certain range so that you didn't see too much movement. And, and unfortunately, as countries hit economic crises, they just fell out of it and they devalued their currency. So, so that was a challenge. You know, later on, they tried some other a monetary union and in sort of ways where they tried to expand the band and let people readjust their, their levels, but that too just, just didn't work very well. So finally they come around and, and they decide, okay, well, one option is we just adopt one currency. 
so we have the euro and and once we get to that point then there won't be worries about what the franc and you know the mark or whatever are trading because it'll just be one currency now to do that uh, governments had to commit to you know balancing their budgets or making sure their deficits were too big they had to commit to some things for it all to work and mm-hmm. you know some of the biggest challenges to the euro that we've seen in you know in the 21st century have been because of different levels of, of debt or inflation or deficits and, and the like, right? Especially in the in the wake of the uh, 2008 2009 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but but overall, you know, the the solution that Europe came up with was they were trying to manage differences in currencies was to most of them double down and, and join in one currency. And and while you know there have been many naysayers of the euro um, since the euro started, you know, 20 more than 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, there are still big challenges because, you know, while it's one currency, the fiscal choices of governments are fairly separate. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's It's been able to last. In fact, it has a few new um, new members in, in just recent years who have joined in to, to you know, take the euro as their currency. You do a great job of explaining how the comment market and the European Union rules to standardize things um, really help companies to be able to grow in the region, um, scale in the region, um, you know, do mergers in the region. Um, and you point out, I think Siemens you use as an example in your book, but then you also talk about how big the banks got, obviously, you know, when they were able to merge under the common market. This is kind of part of the story that didn't necessarily go well. It was good for the corporate structure, but as we've kind of now known, it wasn't exactly ideal for the banking structure. You know, as we sit here, uh, Shannon, the ECB is approving its first ever buybacks among banks over the last three years, which is just crazy to even think about um, that it's the first ever that got approved. So I I guess um, when you look at those mergers that took place in the mid 2000s with a lot of the banks there, why do you think banking regulation was never addressed? I mean, there's still not even a deposit insurance that backs the common market banking, for example. How do you look at what was left out of some of of the rule building in the common market. Yeah, I mean I think that is sort of sort of common capital markets are still to be done. So they started mm-hmm. with goods um, and and that was a real focus and that makes sense in the you know as we think about the post-war period and the return of 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 economies and commerce and the like you started with goods they got to services in in some ways um, and so those two you you know you could if you were an accountant in one place you could be an accountant somewhere else or, or sure. some of these things begin to happen lawyers and, and the like so you see some of that general you know, Labor, we see, we see you got to a, a you know cross border labor, so everybody has one passport, so you can go work in, in other places. Um, even students, you can take your scholarships from one country to another, and so you know they started going to these various things. And then you know finance has been been the laggard. You've seen some relaxation there, um, where and as you were saying, you know they opened it up where you know a German bank could buy a French bank, and they did. Um, and you see a lot of, of of mergers and acquisitions and and growth there. But I do think that initiative that really had some momentum in the early 2000s was set back a pace by the global financial crisis in 2008, sure. 2009. Um, and so everybody put a pause on, on banking because everybody was worried about, about what, where, where things stood. And, and Europe has really focused on other things. You know, they spent many years just, just trying to make sure that the debt of various countries, you know, the Greece or, or Spain or others, you know, that had, you know, sort of shaky finances there in the years that followed, Finding a path back to a European approach to these things, you know, through the ECB, through through other parts of, of the European uh, infrastructure and 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 um, governing system, 
Uh, it is something that, you know, there's a lot of talk about now. Um, right now in, in Europe, when you when you go to Brussels or you, you talk to folks who are focused on this, it's it's in some ways looking at European economic competitiveness. You know, they want to sure. know why why there aren't so many startups. You know, why isn't there a Silicon Valley in Europe? You know, how do we get into, how do we become a cloud computing leader? How do we get into, you know, quantum computing or AI or these things? How do we create sort of a vibrant venture capital market, which Europe has less of? And yeah. some of this are these banking rules these capital market rules where you don't have the scale you have you have separate ones across you know France and Germany and other places rather than have scale across all of all of the um, the various nations that are participating so um, now any of this stuff is hard to do because you know people who um, their vested interests those who make a lot of money um, and are quite happy with the way the system is today they don't want sure. the rules to change so I think there's always that pushback and in the past the European Union for various reasons has been able to to overcome them and so you know I think we'll keep watching what happens here but there are a lot of discussions I would say at least in Brussels on how you might now turn to uh, you know more union um, or European Union around capital markets and the like. Agreed. So let's pivot to Asia because I think you do a great job of walking us from kind of Japan and how the Japan model got replicated and replicated and replicated. So it, you could, could you kind of teach our listeners about what was, what was Japan right after the world, end of the World War, just like kind of we talked about in Europe, and then what transpired through the evolution of the regionalization of Asia, you know, with what Japan then did in other countries? So Asia's regionalization is different than Europe's. Uh, Europe was led top down by diplomats. Asia's arguably, or I would argue, was led by companies and CEOs. And, and Japan was the first to, to to start this off. And so, you know, Japan post World War II, it too had uh, been on the wrong side of the war, and so it mm -hmm. had been devastated um, during the war and and in the end of the war uh, specifically. It had a U.S. Uh, military government there for a while, you know, in transition back, um, but. Japan in the 1950s began to grow quickly again. It began to recover from you know, the post-war period. It also benefited, uh, interestingly, um, from the U.S. Uh, support for Korea in the war there, the Korean War. Japan became a back base for, for the U.S. government and, and often a place of supplying lots of the industrial equipment and, and military equipment that the U.S. needed um, in the Korean War. So Japan quickly came to a point where it had lots of business, um, but didn't have enough workers. So it started outsourcing to other Asian nations, uh, parts of their supply chains. It started creating supply chains that were international. So it turned initially to, at the time, very poor South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore. And so would send out the labor intensive parts of, you know, making cars or making electronics or making cameras or other kinds of, of equipment. These countries then, you know, they they gained, you know, economic activity, they, they gained factories, they learned how to run factories, they gained some technology understanding and sophistication, um, and they began to climb the sort of socioeconomic level and technological level. They became more sophisticated economies and, and wealthier economies. Uh, and then they turned around and when they needed labor and, and they started outsourcing to some of their neighbors. So they turned to, mm -hmm. you know, Thailand and Vietnam and famously China as China started opening up in the in the 1980s and 1990s. And so, you know, governments were part of it. It's not to say that they were totally absent, but, you know, it was companies and CEOs that were going out and then governments would then come along and help them. So, you know, they would say, you know, Japan was going to South Korea, was going to set up some of their companies were going to set up factories. Well, the Japanese government would come along and through their overseas development assistance would build the port. 
that those companies needed to export back to back to Japan or, or out into the world. Uh, and so you see sort of this cooperation and complementarity between the government and, and companies um, as they created regional supply chains. But it wasn't wasn't through free trade uh, agreements. It wasn't through these other diplomatic accords. It was really through searching for commercial opportunity and and searching for, you know, creating more viable and affordable products for the world. When you talked about Asia in your book, I think there were times that I felt there was more of a winner loser game going on. And I want to talk about a couple examples. You mentioned in the in the Chables of Korea, there were several companies, or I'll call it dynastic uh, companies, that uh, had trouble when they didn't agree with the diplomacy in their own country. And you talk about President Park Chung-hee and what he did to those conglomerates that didn't want to develop in the way that the government wanted in Asia. That's true. There was a much heavier hand. And, you know, right now in, in U.S. policy debates, we're talking a lot about the return of industrial policy. And, you know, Asia is a story of industrial policy, to yeah. be sure. Um, and so you did have governments here picking winners and losers and, and deciding that there were certain industries that should be a focus of the private sector and that the government would support them in doing that. And uh, South Korea is, is a famous example of this. Uh, and, you know, the the president at the time, um, these were, you know, not a democracy at the time, president yeah. at the time decided that, you know, South Korea was going to be uh, a leader in shipbuilding, for instance. Um, it did not build ships at the time. And, you know, I think a lot of people at the time sort of scoffed that South Korea, which was, you know, a middle income country at best at the time, was was going to become a leader in shipbuilding. But, you know, lo and behold, they invested state resources, supported the companies that were going down that path, helped them, you know, fund research and development and, and help them create markets uh, and, and have access to markets, put up some protection so that even though their ships at the time weren't as sophisticated or as affordable, um, they would have buyers. And today, South Korea is uh, one of the biggest uh, builders of ships. So this is, you know, this was industrial policy, I guess, gone right. Um, there's lots yeah. of global examples of industrial policy gone wrong. So not to say it always works. But what you did see in Asia, which I do think is different than Europe or different than North America, is sort of the private sector and government working hand in hand in, in different ways, um, but also in ways where regionalization was a big part of the success story. So back to this idea of winners and losers, uh, China did the same thing, but it was a minimum threshold of technology sharing from foreign companies. In other words, like, hey, we get something out of this if you're gonna come to our market through the JVs that they required companies to set up. My question isn't necessarily on what they did, it, my question is, did this, like, I'll call it a steal of intellectual property as we know it today, did that hurt or help the regionalization? Which is a weird question to ask, I know. You know, I think it was part and parcel of the regionalization. And, and if you look at before China, if you look back at, you know, sort of Japan at the time, some of it, there was technological transfer that happened there too, to Taiwan, to South Korea. Um, and mm -hmm. so the governments there would encourage it in the joint venture, sometimes the governments would help buy it or help finance it for, for sure. local companies. Um, sometimes they would then protect their own and 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 push out uh, others once they started to create, you know, semiconductors or the parts they're in. So, so you've seen a, some of this interplay before. Uh, China did it at scale in a way that no one else had, partly because of its size and its ambition. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think this movement of of technology is part of that regionalization story. And and what's interesting about the the China case, I would say, is that you know often here in the United States we're very focused on intellectual property that U.S. companies have, um, and, sure. and whether or not it is secure when it goes to China, or or whether it's copied or or the like. Um, but because Asian companies. Um, have actually been the biggest foreign direct investors in China um, mm-hmm. and really have the most at stake there. You know, they are as worried, if not more, um, or been more affected by China's relationship with uh, foreign intellectual property um, than perhaps, you know, U.S. or European companies have. So, you you know, the Samsungs and, and you know, the, the TSMCs, you know, the Taiwan and South Korea and all of these they, you know, they have as many concerns about this, if not more, because they're so much closer um, embedded and, and wedded to China. Um, and many of them have brought some of their, you know, very technologically sophisticated products there. Um, so I think this is, you know, this is sort of an overall part of, of the dynamic, but it hasn't necessarily stopped the regionalization process because of how much that regionalization, that specialization in economies of scale can bring kind of innovative very affordable products that then are globally competitive. And that's what we've seen time and time again, especially in electronics in Asia, is that these Asian supply chains, this factory Asia that's grown up over the last 40, 50 years, is just second to none around the world in particular products, um, even those that have you know intellectual property at the heart of it. Uh, you talk about how the uh, United States, you know, we sell more intellectual property. I think you talked about like YouTubers and, um, you know, the culture that we effectively export to the world, which the transportation costs, I would argue, are pretty low. Um, d- does China does China have a big disadvantage moving forward? Um, you point out that they're an ocean away from some of the best markets in the world. And in most cases, they're actually still shipping tangible products that, that you know, that what you just mentioned in electronics and other things like that. Do you look at that as, as a, a big disadvantage that will kind of increasingly become a big question for them? Is that just time to get to market and cost to get to market? Well, China has had the distance from the U.S. and European markets, that's for sure. And, and I think that has been a challenge. I mean, I think the real question as we go forward in the next 10, 20 years is, you know, where are the next growing markets, right? Where are the next billion middle-class consumers going to be? And, mm-hmm. you know, the answer is a good portion of them are going to be in Asia. And so actually China has an advantage over the U.S. there, at least, and, and perhaps, sure. you know, Europe, because that's where the next person is going to buy the first car and first refrigerator and yet another iPhone or whatever the other product is, you know. Um, so I think they're actually the kind of access to markets and time to market in terms of physical goods, Maybe moving in China's favor, um, vis-a-vis other, you know, the U.S. Or, or Europe. I think that's that's part of it. You know, the other thing is China has been um, very uh, forward-leaning in in terms of trying to open up those markets for China. Mm-hmm. So we see them going out and signing free trade agreements. You know, the Regional Comprehensive Economic uh, Partnership is that the RCEP? Um, you know, this brings together a dozen plus countries in Asia and really ties up rules of origin that makes it cheaper to produce between these countries altogether. It brings Japan and South Korea and China all together in an agreement, which is you know kind of the first un- unprecedented in bringing them together. Um, China's also applied to become a member of the CPTPP, so the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, that has evolved over the last few years. So they are pretty cognizant of that and and going out and and trying to find these markets and and give themselves an advantage through free trade agreements and the like. 
And then arguably, I would just say on the services side, right, the YouTube and the other, you know, China has uh, social media platforms. It has others that it's pretty aggressive in, in trying to push out there. It has e-commerce platforms. It has its version of Uber and others that they are mm -hmm. trying to get out and, and capture markets as well, um, particularly in, in kind of the rest of the world. And so now who's going to win these battles and, and become, you know, the the head ride sharing app or the, you know, social media or the, you know, the, these versions and the photo sharing app that everybody wants to use. It's, it's hard to see or hard to know so far, but, but I would say they're definitely thinking about this and, and being um, quite forward leaning um, with the rest of the world. If I was, you know, Facebook or Google or, or name your, name your favorite company, yeah. I guess it's not Facebook anymore. It's meta. Um, but as you <laughs> name these, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting back. China has some very sophisticated companies that are looking for global market share as well. So let's pivot to maybe the most contentious five letter word ever used in, uh, America, which is NAFTA. Okay. <laughs> Um, it became law January 1st, 94. I was 10 years old at the time. Can you explain how important you think this agreement was at that time? And then the kind of follow-on question to that is, why does it have such a bad political rap for the benefits it brought? Is it just an easy dog to kick? Yes, this is a question. So how important was NAFTA? I would argue NAFTA was very important. Um, NAFTA, uh, I know this isn't the popular view here um, or the conventional <laughs> wisdom, but I would argue that NAFTA saved a lot of U.S. advanced manufacturing from moving mm -hmm. overseas. Um, arguably, the reason we have a thriving automotive uh, industry in the U.S. is precisely because of NAFTA. Um, and let me let me tell you a story of one town. I gave you the sound of Akron, but let me tell you a story of of Columbus, Indiana, which is about a five hour drive from Akron, Ohio. So sure. this is another, you know, medium sized city in the United States, and it is the home of Cummins engines. Mm -hmm. um, so this was a company that was started between the two world wars. It makes all kinds of engines for, for cars and trucks and heavy machinery and the like. Best diesel engines out there. Yep. Best diesel engines, exactly. Great diesel engines. Um, it thrived in the post-war period, just like tires did in Akron. And then it too hit hard times in the 70s and 80s. It was facing um, Japanese-made engines that were more fuel efficient and, and uh, more um, sort of secure and, and reliable. Um, it was facing you know, BMW and, and Mercedes and others who also made great engines. Um, and you know, Ford and others were looking looking at their competitors and signing contracts with them. And, and so it had a really rough 1980s question about whether it would continue. And I would argue that actually NAFTA saved Cummins engines and saved mm -hmm. Columbus, Indiana. So with NAFTA, Cummins was able to put some of its production in Mexico, so lower its costs so it could win contracts that the Japanese had been beating them out on because they just had lower costs because they were producing across Asia there. They had these regional supply chains already set up, so Cummins could follow and have regional supply chains. Um, Cummins also got new markets. You know, 100 million Mexicans, and, and particularly Mexican truckers, needed engines and it became, you know, they got, Cummins could sell to them tariff-free. And in fact, today, if you go to Mexico and you're behind one of those big stinky trucks on one of their highways, um, it's not Cummins engines that's stinky. It's, you know, other things, but it is probably sure. a Cummins engines because they are the biggest engine uh, supplier in Mexico, coming out of a factory in New York, by the way, um, that are shipped down there. And so you saw Cummins able to recover and, and really thrive precisely because of NAFTA. And you know, you look at taking moving aside from just one company, but looking more broadly, you saw the auto industry 
recover there and, and, and grow significantly in, in the 10 years uh, after NAFTA was signed. Um, you saw regional integration increase a lot in the 1990s. So where right at the signing of NAFTA, about 40% of trade was between Mexico, the United States, and, and Canada. That rose to 47 48%. So almost one out of every two dollars was being traded within these three countries. So people, so companies and others were making things together. They were buying things from each other. They were selling to each other. And there was a real vibrancy. And you also see it was a number of years where jobs, and particularly manufacturing jobs, increased in all three countries. You saw just a real boom in this um, in those post-NAFTA years. Now, hit 2001, China's entrance to the WTO, and much of this disappears. You see trade between the three neighbors fall back from 47, 48% to 40%. So you kind of lose that integration. You see whole industries uh, decamp for China and Asia. So mm -hmm. textiles and shoes and basic electronics and computer printers and all kinds of things uh, end up leaving. Um, interestingly, Mexico, in terms of a relative hit, it's hit harder than the United States in terms of the communities that you know were eroded that the jobs that left they were really hit hard because they were in many ways a, a closer competitor to china and its factories than, than sure. u.s factories um but really to me the challenge that the u.s worker has faced that u.s-based manufacturing and companies has faced it came more from china and what you know some economists call the china shock where somewhere between one and two million jobs left the united states because of china's entrance to the wto mm -hmm. And, and less from Mexico and less from NAFTA. And in, in fact, the, the sort of careful studies that are done of, of NAFTA jobs, you know, gained and lost, it's pretty much a wash. Um, yes, there were more imports from Mexico to the United States. And so if you count that as jobs that would have been done here, there's some losses, but there were more U.S. exports to Mexico. And so those jobs were created um, because we were selling to Mexico. So overall, it's, it's a wash. Um, and it was really... China that I think shook up some of these communities much more than NAFTA. Uh, let's see, you, you, you're making me think of a couple things. I lived in Seattle when the WTO riots happened, uh, when they met there, and that was the oddest thing to see as a as a, someone in high school um, at the time. Uh, let's see, a couple other things you mentioned. Um, when we talked with Amity Schles on her book, The Great Society, she argued that we ended up paying auto workers way too much. And we dis we destroyed our own auto industry. And to your point, the trade rules of NAFTA in some respects helped save those jobs because we could put them to a worker close by to then have the higher skilled worker in the United States um, be continuing to add the highest value in that food chain. Um, so I, I really like your discussion of that. Um, you talked about Everett Washington. My father-in-law worked there for over 30 years. My brother <laughs> does business class seats at the Boeing plant at Everett as we speak. So everything you're saying here, I was like, wow, um, this is great. This is my my life. But then you get you get down to like really tangible things. You talk about the crossing at Tornillo, Guadalupe, Texas. And this just like blew my mind. I mean, it's like we're a modern society, Shannon. We're wicked smart, as they say in Boston. And yet we don't know how to build a road on two sides of a border. So part of the challenge with NAFTA, in part maybe why it's vilified, is it didn't do enough. Right. It's okay. sort of this Goldilocks middle between what happened with with Europe and, and Asia, but not in a good way. So it didn't get into the depth that Europe did. Right. We got rid of tariffs, but we didn't get rid of regulation. So, you know, one of the examples I use in the book, which I just find the sort of funny, but also infuriating is, 
if if a Cheerios are made in a factory in Canada, they can't be sent to the United States. U.S. kids mm-hmm. can't eat them because they have to pass through so many sanitary checks and regulations that, sure. that they just can't come here. Now, I to me, I'm sure that Canadian factory is just fine and I would give my kids those Cheerios, but um, but they're unable to do it. And that is dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of products. Yes, you don't pay a tariff if it goes across the border, but the other kinds of regulations and tests and things that have to be done just make it uneconomical. So you don't get that trade. You don't get the economies of scale. So so that's one of the reasons I think we see um, a challenge to NAFTA is it, it wasn't able to go as far as, as the European side. And then on the other side is we see some industries uh, like the auto industry, which really embraced NAFTA and, and you know took advantage of the rules of origin, took advantages of the three markets put together to mm-hmm. make cars that are innovative, but also cost competitive. And so actually expanded the sales of cars. Um, and interestingly, uh, for those who, you know, think about U.S. jobs and the like, and, and as we were just talking about with Amity's book, you know, interestingly, there's the same number of auto jobs in the U.S. now as there were right before NAFTA. So it hasn't changed that all, the, all that much. They've moved to different parts of the United yeah. States. So, you know, I think it's hard for someone from Michigan to blame their colleagues in Alabama or Tennessee. You know, it's easier to blame Mexico for it sure. um, than, yeah. you know, your colleagues in, in the House of Representatives or, or in the Senate. So, so that's part of it. Um, but interestingly, with NAFTA, you saw all sorts of international car companies come to North America to begin to produce here, because Mm -hmm. if you produced outside, you'd have to pay a tariff if you're from Japan or or Germany or or France and the like. Um, And most of those actually put up shop in the United States, not in Mexico and not in Canada. Um, So interestingly, for instance, Toyota is, you know, one of the biggest car companies in the United States. Sometimes it rivals GM in terms of of sales uh, within North America and the United States. Um, and of the 15 plants that they put in North America, I think latest count, 12 of them were in the United States and, and three were in the Ebron, Kentucky. Yeah. Exactly. Right and, and, yeah. and a dozen other places, too. So so interestingly, you know, NAFTA crowded in a lot of investment and a lot of jobs and factories here in the United States that probably wouldn't have come if you didn't have that region and you didn't have the sort of benefits of being within the trade region, of locating within the trade region. So I, I do understand the difficulties, right? I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and we started we talking about that that story and and how hard it is when the economic vibrancy and the social fabric begin to fray um, when industries leave town. Um, but I think if we're going to try to fix it, whether it's Washington or, or CEOs yeah. and companies and the like, you have to know why it left. Um, and I don't think it was because of NAFTA in a lot of these places. Sure, you do a good job explaining a well-educated, uh, medically trained doctor in Canada can't do anything in the United States, which I think is just even funny to think about. Um, and it, when, when you mentioned that, I, I had a college uh, fraternity brother of mine, he was from uh, Penticton, British Columbia. He went to college in the US at Whitman College and he couldn't go to a federally funded uh, research institute over the summer unless he found a grant from an outside donor because it was federally funded. Um, so again, like with bright minds that can't even do stuff in the country that they're being educated. And it's very funny to think about. Let me pivot because you said something that like, I mean, this speaks to our podcast, Shannon. I love this. I just like, I just, I gigged out when you said this. You advocate for a liberal arts education comeback and almost like, like you sc- hear you screaming, Shannon, like humanities, like out loud almost. And so uh, my heart leapt. I want you to know that. I really appreciate that. I couldn't agree more. But would love you to explain why why you said this in your book. 
So it is not just because I did that, right? <laughs> it's like that was, you know, often you you say what you do, but but it's for a couple reasons. Um, one is just the speed of technological change uh, mm-hmm. and the growth of quantum, you know, physics and computing, in particular AI. And you know, we've just seen in the in the last few months, you know, since since I finished the book and finished doing the copy edits, but. You know, I'm sure you've tried it. I've tried it. The sort of GPT chat and, you know, the kinds of things that can be done here as we think about what, you know, what we'll be doing, but especially our kids will be doing or our grandkids will be doing, um, you know, so many of the things that that can be done today will be done much better and faster and more efficiently by computers. But mm-hmm. what can't be done by computers or will not be done immediately by computers, I think are the things that make us truly human, you know, the imagination and the creativity and the complex problem solving and the relating to people and the entertaining and and the, you know, problem solving. And a lot of that stuff really depends on more of a liberal arts education. You know, computers are going to be able to code for sure, but can they do those other kinds of things? Can they write plays? Can they write ones that really touch your soul? Can they engage you in things? Can they bring teams together to solve tough problems? That's where I think it will be harder to find people. So one is for your economic survival, commercial survival, and future careers. I think you need that broader set of skills, right? That's part of it. The other is that I think for all of us, you know, we'll probably change jobs more um, more often than, you know, mm-hmm. our parents did or our grandparents. And we already see that, right? We already see the normal tenure is, you know, five years, not 25 years and in different jobs. And, and as you change jobs and as you need different kinds of skills, you need to be able how to learn. Um, and what I think a great liberal arts education does is... You know, it might teach you the history of Russia or it might teach you, you know, Chaucer or some of these things. I'm not sure that really matters, but it does <laughs> teach. You, I mean, sorry, Chaucer. Sorry to Chaucer there. But um, but it does teach you how to learn. Mm. It does teach you how to absorb new things, to think about things in different perspectives, to take different frameworks and and apply them in places and in areas or in subjects that you've never approached before. Sure. Um, and, and I think that's going to be our future. And then I guess finally what I would say, and this has nothing to do with U.S. economic competitiveness or, or the like, but um, hopefully, you know, we don't spend 24-7, uh, you know, at our desks and working and there's other parts to life. And there I do think... Uh, you know, a liberal arts education gives you um, some thoughts and helps you explore what you might want to fill those other eight hours of your day with. Completely agree. Uh, as an economics and history double major in college and someone who picks stocks for a living, I just want you to continue to preach on that subject, by the and way. And you read lots of books. so <laughs> And I, I read lots of books. And by the way, to your point, um, I think the biggest fallacy is that when you go to school, you're, you're learning to know and you're not, you're learning to learn right? You're, that's the process you're going through. You're teaching yourself how to teach yourself. And therefore you continue to apply that same process um, throughout your life. Let's see. So Shannon, there's quite a few things that we didn't have time for, but um, people should read on what you write on demographics, I think is an excellent point in your book and, and how the demographics lay out across the world. Um, I, you know, if for another discussion, another day, maybe when I'm in New York and I can have time to buy you a glass of wine. I'd love to talk later with you about the industrial policy shifting and are we going back to the military industrial complex and those kind of ideas. Um, but I want to That's the next book, you, so happy to discuss it with you. <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be fun. But so I guess, is there anything from this book that we didn't talk about that you, you, do, you do think needs to be mentioned um, for our listeners? I guess where I would just end here, and, and this is, you know, being very U.S. centric about it all, and we can definitely talk about it from other perspectives. But, but I guess I would say this: I would say 
you know, right now, the globalization of the last 40 years, it is changing. It's been changing for the last decade, and, and COVID mm -hmm. has just accelerated these changes. And there's all sorts of factors. There's automation that we've been talking about. There's demographics. There's climate change. Um, there's, you know, demand from consumers to get things faster and, and you know, right to their doors. Um, and there's geopolitics. Um, and we haven't really touched on that as much, but obviously we've we've hinted at it here. You know the challenges and the suspicions between the U.S. and China, the the you know the real challenges and, and kinetic conflicts that are happening in Russia and the Ukraine, mm -hmm. and, and these other places. And so all of these are changing in some ways the globalization of of the last forty years. And to me, these changes they're they're moving in different directions to be sure, but overall they will lead toward more regionalization, fragmentation but definitely regionalization. Because what I do think countries will find outside of a very few industries that will be deemed vital for national security and, and you know, governments will be willing to subsidize indefinitely, you're still going to have to, and outside of that, you're still going to have to make profits and losses. You're still going to have to be yeah. competitive. And to do that, no country, not the United States, not China, not you know, Europe even, no country or any country in Europe, no country is going to be able to do this profitably, competitively on their own. So international supply chains are here to stay, um, but they are going to move around and they are moving around because of all these factors. And where I do think most of them will land as they move around or a good portion will land is in more regionalization. So this isn't just the story of the past 40 years. I think it's the story of the next 10 or 20 to come. Shannon, your framework for the regionalization of the world, uh, like I said earlier, and I'll highlight again, is is so pragmatic and refreshing. Um, you actually had me thinking when I got done with your book, gosh, why don't we have an office in Toronto or as someone that represents our investment firm in Mexico City? So I have been scratching my head on that too, just so you know, and I appreciate you for, for making me ask that question. Um, you highlight many of what I'll argue are man-made problems. They're, they're not natural. They're just been put up by rules or regulations or laws. Our listeners need to go buy a copy of your book, The Globalization Myth. Shannon, thank you again for joining us. For our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go out, rate it, review it um, on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to our show. If you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, I know uh, Shannon mentioned The Box earlier, which I'll probably go get a copy of. Email us at podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.